0: I am here with Stuart Russell, the author of Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence, and the Problem of Control. Thank you for joining me. Nice to be here. So this book it was great. I've been fascinated with all of the possible pitfalls and great things that AI might bring us. Um, and there are so many that I hadn't even, hadn't even crossed my mind until reading this book.
1: Well, there are lots more that I didn't get into. <laughs>
0: So to a layperson who thinks this isn't even an issue worth bothering ourselves with right now, what, what is the, what is your short way of convincing them that this is worth anybody's time?
1: Uh, so two ways. One is it's, uh, it's already happening in the sense that we're already building and deploying AI systems uh, the wrong way that are having serious negative effects. Um, and the social media catastrophe is probably the easiest example to understand because that's a uh, that's so on the social media platforms, whenever you read something or watch something, it's been uh, fed to you by an algorithm uh, that is trying to maximize click-through or eyeball time or some other metric. Um, and in doing so, they forgot to include a whole bunch of other things, like not turning uh, the world population into neo-fascists. <laughs> and, um So since the algorithm wasn't told that it wasn't supposed to do that, that's what it did Um, by modifying our preferences through uh, feeding us sequences of content that gradually uh, lead us to be much more extreme and therefore much more predictable versions of ourselves. So the the algorithm only cares about whether you're predictable uh, because the more predictable you are, the more money it can make off you. Um, But it so happens as a side effect that... um, seems to have turned many people into much more extreme versions of themselves. So that's one example. But in the long run, if you just ask, uh, ask anyone, even a person, you know, a diehard uh, skeptic, as we call them, or a denialist, as you might also call them, um, okay, so we're investing hundreds of billions of dollars with the goal of creating general purpose intelligence that's more intelligent than human beings. Um, and therefore, more powerful than human beings. How do you propose to retain power over more powerful entities than yourself forever? So that's the question. That's and, uh, and usually, usually when you put it like that, people say, "Oh, yeah, I see. What, I see what you mean. Uh, okay, I haven't thought about that." <laughs> right, and that's the issue. Right, we are spending hundreds of billions of dollars to achieve something, and we haven't thought about it yet. So you know, my my colleague uh, or former student Andrew Ng is one of the skeptics and he says, well, you know, I don't worry about this any more than I worry about overpopulation on Mars. But, you know, if we had a plan to move the entire human race to Mars and no one had thought about what we were going to breathe when we got there, uh, you would say that's an unwise plan. Right. right. Um, But that's the situation that we're in. No one has thought about what happens if we succeed. So the book is partly about how to convince people that this matters and and then what you know what is my proposal for doing something about it
0: right and the social media thing is interesting because i was thinking about if you could go back in time 10 or even just 5 years and you tried to be the uh Paul Revere of of this problem it would be really difficult to even convince people of what 2019 would look like in that way like i don't think people would have believed we would have entire governments fundamentally altered as an unintended consequence of optimizing for click-through, and yet it already happened this quickly.
1: Uh, yeah, so for the non-American listeners, oh. the, the Paul Revere is someone who warned that uh, the British are coming, the British are coming, so he was on the side of the American revolutionaries. And uh, I, I guess my recommendation would have been, uh, first of all, change the way you think about the problem. So don't just think. Okay, what is what is my objective? My in this case being the social media platforms. What is my immediate short-term objective? It's to make money, and then set up some optimizing machinery with that as the objective, and then completely ignore the effects that that's going to have on things other than your bottom line. So, with um, you know, with com- you know, chemical companies that used to just dump poisonous chemicals into the river uh, while they were making money, we said, okay, you have to stop doing that or you have to pay enormous fines or taxes or whatever. We're trying to tax uh, the oil companies and coal companies for for the carbon dioxide, but that doesn't seem to be working. Um, so we can't really do that with uh, turning people into neo-fascists. It's not clear, you know, what, what should the penalty be per... Per neo-fascist created, um, but basically, if if you're going to build a system that messes with stuff whose value you're not sure about, uh, then you should try to avoid messing with that stuff. So in this case, the stuff is the human mind. You know, <laughs> our, our opinions, our positions, our our perceptions of the world. So to the extent possible uh don't build systems that mess with that uh, since you don't know uh whether that messing is a good idea or a bad idea um, and so you can design algorithms that are much less likely to manipulate people um so the The basic difference for the for the geeks is between a supervised learning algorithm that learns what people want and a reinforcement learning algorithm that changes what people want so that it's easier to supply. And the reinforcement learning algorithm doesn't know you have a brain. It doesn't know you have political opinions. You're just a clickstream history. And um, and they, they learn that given a certain type of clickstream history, if you subsequently feed certain articles to that clickstream history, um, it starts to generate more money. Uh, and that's it. So it turns out from our side that Uh, You're gradually feeding people more and more extreme violent videos or more and more extreme pornographic content or more and more extreme political content. Um, Whereas a supervised learning algorithm is not trying to change the world. It's just trying to learn what the world is like. In this case, learn what your opinions are. So you might still get a bit of an echo chamber effect, but you wouldn't get this manipulation of people to the extremes, which is what seems to have happened. Um, So this is a general principle. Uh, and this is sort of what, one of the consequences of the new way of AI, new way of doing AI that the book proposes, is that when the algorithm knows that it doesn't know the value of everything, uh, it will naturally avoid messing with the parts of the world whose value it's not sure about. Uh, and if it does have to mess with that, it will ask permission. Um, so if if it was a you know climate control system before turning the ocean into sulfuric acid in order to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide, uh, it would ask permission because it's not sure if we want the ocean to be made of sulfuric acid. Um, And so you get the kind of deferential behavior that uh, you would hope for.
0: Yeah, you get into a lot of interesting economic and and philosophical arguments about the utility of of various things. And yeah, you can't really hope to program in every possible negative outcome of a situation into an AI, you can just hope to make it constantly check back in with us and make sure it's still aligned with what our preferences are at that moment. To to, to the
1: extent uh, and also it can still be useful as long as it's only changing things that it's pretty sure that we like to be changed in that direction. Right. Uh, So you get something that is effectively going to be what we call provably beneficial, meaning that, um, it's you you're bound to be better off with this kind of machine and and one one way of looking at it is if if you think about the standard model of ai which is that ai systems are designed to to optimize a fixed objective so whether it's a a goal like you know take me to the airport well that the airport becomes the objective um or in reinforcement learning for example you know you're you're learning from rewards and punishments and the The objective there is simply to maximize the the rewards that you receive. Um, So all these algorithms are based on the idea of a fixed objective. And um, we've known for thousands of years, you know, since the legend of King Midas and the the genie who grants you three wishes and the third wish is always, please undo the first two wishes (laughs) because I world, Right. So we've known for thousands of years that we cannot specify objectives completely and correctly in the real world. It's fine on the chessboard, you know, which is a tiny artificial world where the objective of winning is already set up. But in the real world, it just doesn't work that way. There are side effects like turning everyone into neo-fascists <laughs> uh, or turning the ocean into sulfuric acid that you, that you would just forget. Um, and so machines have to operate knowing that they don't know the full extent of human preferences about the future. Um, and so in the old model, the standard model with a fixed objective, the smarter your system gets, the worse it gets, because it becomes better and better at achieving something that you don't want, uh, and also better and better at resisting any attempts to interfere or to switch it off. And this is one of the things that people have been you know, waving and, and shouting about for more than a decade now, is that... Uh, A system pursuing a fixed objective will necessarily take steps to protect itself, not because it wants to be alive, but because, you know, you can't fetch the coffee if you're dead. Um, So (laughs) if the goal is to fetch the coffee, uh, then you've given it an incentive to stay alive simply so that it can succeed in fetching the coffee.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of very smart people have thought up until very recently that you could still, well, you just turn it off, just unplug it. And, of course, if it's smarter than we are, it would have already figured out how to keep us from doing that if it wanted to achieve its goals.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. So, so Alan Turing, uh, who is the, the founder of computer science, uh, one of the great intellectual heroes of the 20th century, so he, um, he gave a talk in 1951 where he said, uh, he gave a couple of talks. One of them, he was completely resigned. He basically said, we would have to expect the machines to take control. and uh, another talk, he says, well, we might at strategic moments be able to shut off the power, but even so our species would be humbled. Uh, so not not a very optimistic no. uh, prospect. Um, and he was wrong about the shutting off the power because, uh, as you say, it's already thought of that. You know, you can't shut off the power anymore that you can just, you know, beat a superhuman chess player by just playing the right moves. Well, yeah, in theory, you could just play the right moves, but in practice, you can't because it's smarter than you are. Um, so it will always anticipate uh, and frustrate your attempts. And it'll, it'll take preemptive steps and possibly even deceptive steps. So it might uh, pretend to be innocuous, harmless, and stupid long enough to prepare all of its defenses so that it can carry out the objective that you gave it. <laughs> not, it's not deceptive because it's evil or because it wants to do something different from what you told it it's just afraid that something it might do would cause you to switch it off, and so since it needs to achieve the objective that's been programmed into it, uh, it develops a subterfuge of, of appearing helpless, um, so that uh, it can prepare all its defenses, um, <laughs> uh, and then and then come out with the real plan to achieve the objective. Right. Um, whereas the you know in the the new approach to AI. Uh, you get the exact opposite effect, that the smarter the machine is, the better it is for you, because the better it learns what your true preferences are, the better it avoids uh, messing with parts of the world that it's not sure about. Um, And just in general, it's going to be more useful to you. So, um, So really, this is, you know, partly the book is aimed at everybody, saying, Look, you know, here is AI. Here is how it's done. Here is why doing more of that leads you off the cliff. Um, and then there's this is other approach. But it's also a little bit aimed at the AI community um, to say, listen, I think I want everyone to uh, stop and think about how they're building their systems. Um, and I'm not wagging my finger and saying you're bad people. Um, I'm just saying the method of engineering that we've developed um you know and it was developed back in the middle of the 20th century mm-hmm. the the basic paradigm and it's the same paradigm as we have for control theory control engineering where you you have a fixed cost function that the uh that the controller has to minimize um in uh, economics you know you you have a fixed target like a gdp or the corporate profit um in statistics you try to minimize the loss function, uh, so basically the cost of prediction errors. And in all these cases, we assume that the objective is fixed and known to the machinery that's supposed to be optimizing it. Um, and that's just you know, an, an extreme and extremely unrealistic special case of what is generally true, which is that the machinery that's supposed to be optimizing doesn't have access to the objective.
0: Right, and you spend a fair bit of time in the book talking about the definition of, of intelligence, even in humans. Um, and we don't always know what our true uh, reasoning behind things are. We're not even anywhere. You, you said that we're, we're as far away from being rational as what was the analogy? I think as a
1: (laughs) slug, a slug is from overtaking the starship enterprise at warp nine. (laughs) That's the way you put it. Yeah. So, um, so there's a number of things about human intelligence that are not ideal. Um, so one of them is clearly that, uh, the world is much, much, much too complicated to actually behave rationally, i.e. for our actions to be the ones that, that best satisfy our own preferences about the future. Um, so you can see that very simply if you look at, you know, look at chess, right? I mean, you, you're, you're stuck, you're standing there in front of a chessboard. That chessboard is a tiny little piece of the real world and it's very, very well behaved. Um, we know exactly how the pieces move and what the rules are, and yet we still can't make the right decision, uh, in that situation. And the real world is so much more complicated. The horizons are so much longer than they are in chess. Um, there are so many more moving parts. The rules are so much less well known. Uh, the world is much less predictable. So that means that, uh, as a practical matter, in fact, no computer is ever going to be rational either. Uh, even if it was the size of the universe, uh, it still can't calculate what is the right course of action that best achieves my preferences. Um, so that's one thing sometimes called bounded rationality. Um, but another thing, as you say, is that we don't even know our own preferences about the future. Um, so that makes it doubly hard to write them down Completely incorrectly and provide them to the machine. Uh, so an example I use in the book, which which apparently had has already been adopted by some philosophers, is uh, this fruit called the durian, which um, which I never tried and I I deliberately didn't try it while I was writing the book, um, because the the durian fruit is something that some people think is completely sublime, and you know writers but going back to the nineteenth century have described as, as the most sublime of foods provided <laughs> on this earth uh and then other people say well it reminds me of skunk spray vomit you know uh, moldy wound swabs it's, uh, yeah
0: isn't it banned on it, public it, transit in a lot of countries
1: yeah yeah so it, so it's um it's common in you know southeast asia indonesia and so on and and every so often you hear one of these durian emergencies where you know they packed some into a crate on an airplane and they didn't seal it properly and the passengers, you know, revolt and force the pilot to turn around and land oh so they can get off the plane. Or you know, entire buildings are evacuated uh, and so on and so forth. So it's it's you know, for some people, it's absolutely unbearable. And I don't know which of those two kinds of people I am. So that's a clear case where I don't know my preferences about a future that involves eating durian. Right? Is that a future I want or a future I don't want? And I don't know. Um, and, uh, in fact, when you, when you think about it, that's pretty much the universal situation we find ourselves in. You know, if you're, you know, you're, you're finishing high school and you go to the career counselor and they say, well, you know, you, there's a, there's a job in the coal mine or there's a job open in the library, right? So do you want to be a librarian or a coal miner? You don't know. You haven't the faintest idea. Uh, you don't know how you're going to enjoy being underground or being surrounded by dusty books and have no one to talk to for hours on end, um, and, uh, and so I think this is actually pretty much the normal condition that there's large parts of our our own um, preferences, meaning how much we will like any given life uh, that we just don't know until uh, until we see it. We, you know, someone who's good at introspection. Uh, probably has a better idea of how they're going to feel about a given situation, but you still don't know until you're in
2: it.
0: And how do you program an AI to take into account that those preference changes or or personal growth? Right, that's the issue.
1: Uh, yeah, well, or- so there's, there's there's two issues, right? So it it isn't it isn't necessarily preference changes in the sense that that my preferences are sort of in me. They're they're there. But I don't know what they are. Right? So whether or not I like durian, it's not a decision I make, right? I I I taste the durian and I find out what my preferences are, but they were they were there in me. It's a latent part of my my neurological structure, I guess, or something about my DNA um, as to whether or not I like the durian taste. And so that part where your preference for durian is something that's fixed but unknown that's relatively easy for us to deal with um you know we're already working under the assumption that the machine is learning about your preferences from from choices that you make and you know if if you don't know whether or not you like durian then you're not either going to run away from it or you know drool at the prospect of eating some durian right you're gonna you're gonna exhibit sort of not indecisive behavior Hmm, not sure if i really want to try this and you know um kind of like if you if you read dr seuss's green eggs and ham right Mm -hmm. uh, i don't don't want to try it no i don't want to try i definitely don't want to try okay maybe i'll try it (laughs) so that that kind of behavior clearly shows that you know you you actually are not really sure whether you like the durian or the green eggs and ham um and so that's fine and and the the machine would wouldn't force you to eat durian because it's convinced that you like it, um, and it wouldn't deprive you of it because it's convinced that you hate it. It would uh, maybe suggest that you try a little bit at some point whenever you're ready, um, and that's what you'd want. The difficult part actually is is the plasticity of preferences that are obviously we're not born with a whole complicated set of preferences about politics, about religion, about how much we value, you know, uh, wealth uh, generation versus family time versus this versus that. Um, we're not born knowing what it's like to have children. You know, many people think they really want to have children and and change their minds and and so on. So we're we're acquiring and solidifying preferences all the time through experiences that that may not be the experience that the preference is directly about. Right. For example, I think. A lot of our culture uh, convinces us that um, that having children is a, is a desirable thing that it's a wonderful experience and I think that contributes to uh, to the formation of our preferences um, and so the question is how do you avoid the AI system uh, manipulating human preferences so that they're easier to satisfy
0: right so, it, sort of the loophole. Theory that you talked about, like if if this thing is smart enough, it's going to find a way to shortcut to get the goal that you gave it.
1: Uh, Yeah. So so the 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 problem has to be formulated very carefully. Um, So you might say, okay, the the goal is not just you know in, in in English, if we were talking to each other, we would say, okay, we want the sort of underlying constitutional objective of the of the machine to be satisfying human preferences to be beneficial to us um but when you get into setting up the mathematical problem if you are operating under the assumption that human preferences can be changed then you need to be more precise do you mean the preferences the human had at the beginning the human we know what they had at the end um the preferences that they would have if you weren't interfering right it becomes a little bit more complicated so the the simplest answer would be the preferences that they had at the beginning, um, but that's a little bit problematic because you know if if a let's say you have a domestic robot that's with you for most of your life, well obviously you you know by the time you're fifty you don't want it to be satisfying the preferences you had when you were five. Right. Um, so, but at the same time you don't want it to be molding your preferences actively. It cannot really. Have no effect on your preferences, because you know just having a, a domestic robot serving you is going to change the kind of person you are. Um, probably you're going to be a little bit more spoiled uh, than you would be otherwise um, and so uh, so I don't think you can argue that the the machine cannot touch human preferences or have any effect on them because I think that's just infeasible, so I would say this is one of the areas where we need a lot more um, philosophical help actually mm-hmm. to uh, to get these kinds of uh, refinements done correctly
0: and speaking of philosophy, we didn't actually define intelligence to start this conversation like what uh, obviously we already have machines that are hyper competent and more competent than humans in a lot of different fields, but like what is the definition of of intelligence and what uh, what is this if if everyone succeeds in what they're doing right now, what will AI look like? Do, do these AIs have to have their own intrinsic goals to be intelligent, as opposed to just ones we gave them? Do they have to have wants like humans do? Uh,
1: so no, they 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 certainly don't have to have any of their own internally generated uh, desires. Um, so the, the the standard model is where we build machinery that optimizes objectives that we put in. Um, and that can be done in many different ways. There are many di- different kinds of AI frameworks and algorithms. Um, so, for example, reinforcement learning is one where you don't put in, in some sense, you don't put in the entire objective up front. You kind of feed it to the out, the learning algorithm in dribs and drabs. Depending on its behavior, you you give positive or negative rewards, or negative reward being a punishment in some sense, um and so its goal is to maximize the the stream of positive rewards that it receives and um, so the the precise objective is is implicit in the part that is supplying the rewards uh that's that's what we would call the objective um, so it doesn't make sense for them to derive their own separate goals and objectives, because, uh, for one thing, um, adding its own goals and objectives would mean that it wouldn't be achieving the ones that we set for it. Right. Um, and also we don't really have any, any good idea for how to generate goals out of nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's Um, really, when you start to think about that, it kind of blows your mind. Like what is, what is a goal? Right.
1: Right. I mean, we, we have, um, we have a very complicated system. Uh, there's a there's a biological system based around our do- dopamine system, um, which evolution built into us to give us a kind of a guidepost for, you know, how not to die immediately. So the dopamine system is positively stimulated by by uh, nice, sweet, calorie rich foods um, and sex and other things like that. So basically, this is evolution saying, look, if you eat, eat a lot of uh, edible food and have lots of sex, then you'll probably end up uh, having a high degree of evolutionary fitness. Um, but it doesn't work perfectly, right? So it, you can also take a whole bunch of drugs to stimulate your dopamine system, um, and then you don't reproduce and you die fairly quickly. Uh, And, um, so the dopamine system is not a perfect signpost to how to behave in order to have, uh, evolutionary success, but it's so much better than nothing Mm -hmm. that, um, that many, many successful species have dopamine systems, uh, or something equivalent, uh, so that, um, and that, that dopamine system is what allows you to learn during your lifetime. It gives you a signal saying yeah this is probably good this is probably good so you know to become better at finding this kind of sweet food or finding mates or whatever it might be um and learning during your lifetime uh turns out um to actually accelerate evolution so it's sort of a doubly beneficial process from evolution's point of view um so that's one part of our own internal uh motivation system or preference structure if you like and then Another part, and possibly much more important, is what we soak in from our culture, from family, friends, peers, uh, and these days from media. Um, and there, you know, we, that I think departs often very strongly from the basic biological urges that the dopamine system provides, so by by setting up, uh, for example, in some cultures, let's say um, in Tibetan Buddhism, the, the the goal to be a monk is set up as one of the most desirable objectives. And that was also true in medieval Europe, uh, you know, with the Catholic monasteries. They were wealthy. Um, they were relatively safe compared to ordinary life, um, privileged, powerful. So that was a very desirable cultural goal that was was built in uh to to individuals through the culture but it's a non reproducing role uh okay. so clearly it's not uh, it's not something that evolution uh would would advocate at least for individuals and it maybe there's some wise evolutionary plan uh to to have a, a large number of people being monasteries to to keep the species safe and on the right track but I, I doubt it. I think it's just this is what happens with cultural processes as opposed to biological processes.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so these days we have, you know, we have all kinds of different role models, all kinds of different, uh, you know, pressures to consume, uh, you know, whether it's food or clothes or fashion, media, content, sport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a very, very complicated landscape. And, and. That interacts with with our our emerging um, maturing consciousness and uh, and internal mental processes in ways that are wonderfully varied um, and produce individuals with you know all kinds of vocations um, and and desires for their own future and the future of other people uh, so all of that is um, is going on in humans and and basically you know to sum it all up right you're intelligent to the extent that your actions can be expected to achieve your objectives and uh, you know that this is a notion you know that goes back in economics and philosophy for hundreds or thousands of years of, of rational behavior um, and uh, you know it's often Caricatured as as sort of you know homo economicus, just you know greed um, acquisition of wealth is the only objective. Of course, that's not what it means. Right, your objectives can be anything at all. Um, you know, you could be Mother Teresa and have the objective of, of uh, saving the lives of destitute children, mm-hmm. uh, and that's completely fine. Right, you don't have to be selfish. You don't have to be greedy. You don't have to care about money. It could be anything at all. So, rational behavior um, is the the ideal for what we mean by human intelligence, and then we basically just copied that into machines uh, and and that became the basis for AI back in the forties and fifties when the whole field was getting going and uh, I think this was a mistake uh,
0: which having it just modeled after a human goals in and of itself is a mistake
1: yeah having it be having the idea be that machines are intelligent to the extent that their actions can be expected to achieve their objectives ah. right? sort of copying this notion and saying well that's what it means for a human to be intelligent then that's what it means for a machine to be intelligent and then of course you know the machine doesn't have its own objectives it doesn't have all the biology and the culture so we would just put those in and for these simple kind of Toy worlds like the chessboard or the the virtual chessboard, um, it seems quite natural that you would just have the goal of winning the game, and uh, or if you want to, you know, uh, find routes on a map, the goal is just okay. You want to get to the destination as quickly as possible, and so it seemed like on in these toy examples that people were uh, beginning to work on that it was you know specifying the objective wasn't the problem um and in fact in many cases what they were working on in ai was artificial problems that had already been set up with a well defined objective so chess is one of those the goal of checkmate is just part of the definition of chess so it kind of comes with a perfectly defined objective um
0: which is not like the real world of course right. in
1: general. exactly so that's that's the problem that you know, and, and funnily enough, in the, in the early part of the, the history of AI, we also made an assumption that the rules were known uh, and that the state of the world was known. And that, again, is true in chess. We know the rules of chess. We can see where the pieces are on the board. And so uncertainty simply doesn't come into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for most of the first... 30 years or so of of AI research, um, it was assumed that you would know the rules and you would know the state of the world. And uh, sometime around 1980, uh, the the main leading researchers in the field sort of fessed up and they said, okay, fine, we're right. We admit that in fact we won't always have perfect knowledge of how the world works and we won't always have perfect knowledge of the state of the world, I mean, this is sort of blatantly obvious to everybody now, It was surprisingly difficult for people to admit it uh, because it meant that the technology they had developed, which was mainly this sort of symbolic logic technology, was limited in its application, that you couldn't solve a lot of real-world problems using symbolic logic because you didn't have definite knowledge of the state or of the the rules, the dynamics, the physics of the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, we accepted uncertainty wholeheartedly by the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. But we continued to assume that the objective was known completely and correctly, that we had perfect knowledge of the objective and the machine would be able to have that perfect knowledge. And I can't really explain why it's taken um, another 25 or 30 years to uh to see you know and i i i'm one of them right it, it took me a while to see that in fact in the real world you'd almost never have perfect knowledge of the of the objective that the machine was supposed to be pursuing
0: mm-hmm. it's surprising you talk about how people who are raising the alarm about possible negative outcomes of ai are seen as anti-ai or, or luddites when in fact you're just saying no we just have to take into account these possible problems and that people who are developing the technology are some of the ones who are saying, don't worry, we'll never even get there. So there's no need for concern. It's like, well, then why are you working on it if you think you, you won't actually achieve this? Yeah, I mean,
1: it, it's, it's bizarre. And I think, I think we just have to assume that uh, it's a kind of defensive denialism. Um, it, it would be uncomfortable and awkward to admit that what you're working on uh, might be, first of all, the wrong path and also a threat to the human race.
0: One of the biggest events that would happen in in the course of human civilization would be, would be inventing superhuman AI. That would be up there with an asteroid wiping out civilization or things like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. And this this was um, actually the begin at the beginning of the book. I'm recounting uh, a talk that I gave at an art museum in London to a completely non-technical audience, and it was the first time that I was sort of publicly declaring this uh this position so the, so the phrase the the biggest event in human history comes from that lecture um and it was basically i i formulated it as kind of like the oscars and you know, here are the here are the five candidates for biggest event in human history you know asteroid wipes everybody out or you know we we all die in sort of you know climate disaster or um you know we develop fast than light travel and conquer the universe we solve the problem of aging and all we all become uh, immortal um, we're uh, a, a sup, uh, superior alien civilization lands on the earth and then the last one was uh, that we develop super intelligent ai and uh the, you know i i chose that one as as the winner the biggest event because um basically our whole civilization is is just built on our intelligence, and if we have a lot more of it, um, that would be uh, an entirely new civilization, um, and possibly a much better one if we can actually keep it. Um, if we can control the the potentially much more powerful entities that we're creating, then um, we can uh, we can direct that power. Uh, to the benefit of everybody so it could be a golden age Um, it could in fact give us the immortality and the fast and light travel if those things are possible then they're going to be much more possible uh, if we have access to such tools Um, and it's a little bit like the arrival of uh, superior alien civilization except that it's not a black box at least it's not a black box if we do it the right way um, you know, if it was really a black box and if if an an alien entity landed on earth that was much more intelligent than humans, you know, how would you control it? You couldn't. Yeah. You would, right? You lose your toast. So, forget it. Um, the only route to uh to getting this right is is to design the AI system in such a way that we can provably control it. It's not good enough to say, well, I think we've done a good job. And, uh, you know, and I've given all the programmers some, some pretty good guidelines. (laughs) You know, and we have a panel, uh, you know, of experts, just in case something goes wrong, uh, that this is not going to cut it. Look at what happened with nuclear power, right? The risks of nuclear power were pretty apparent, because people had seen what a nuclear explosion was like, and and what it could do. And there was a, a lot of regulation
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh some people estimate that for every for every pound of nuclear power station there are seven pounds of paper uh, it's hard to imagine but that's that's what i've been told by nuclear engineers um so the amount of of uh, regulation around the construction uh and testing and checking of nuclear power stations was was immense much bigger i think than anything ever before in the history of mankind but still that wasn't enough right we still had chernobyl and fukushima and that wiped out the nuclear industry as well as a fair number of people and a large chunk of land Um, and so we didn't get any of the benefits of nuclear power uh, because we stopped building nuclear power stations and a lot of countries have actually decided to phase it out altogether. So Germany, for example, is in the process of getting rid of all its nuclear power stations. So all those potential benefits of carbon-free energy and cheap electricity and so on, uh, we lost because we didn't pay attention to the risks. And nobody would say you know, that a nuclear engineer who's proposing uh, an improved design of nuclear power stations that's less likely to suffer a meltdown, no one would call him a Luddite. Right uh so why you know why is uh so it's the Information Technology Innovation Foundation that awards the the Luddite award um, and they've awarded that prize to people who are pointing to potential risks from AI <laughs> uh, and uh this seems weird right yeah uh and uh, at the same time these they, i guess they're applauding people. Who say, uh, you know, people within the field of AI who are, who are now saying for the first time ever, oh, by the way, you know, the reason we don't have to worry is because in fact we're guaranteed to fail. You <laughs> if you ask me, that's anti-AI uh, to to say that this this uh, this problem is beyond the capabilities of of the assembled. Uh, AI researchers of the world you know who are growing rapidly um, and you know now have access to hundreds of billions of dollars in funding uh-huh. to say that that all of those incredibly smart people are too stupid uh, to solve the remaining problems between here and human level ai um, first of all i think it's it 's completely groundless right there is no argument being made as to why the problem can't be solved other than well if it isn't uh if it isn't solved then we don't have to worry so so it, it it basically means uh it's a way of washing your hands of the problem yeah other than that there's no justification being given whatsoever the other thing is that you know it history tells us that that's a pretty foolish attitude um and in fact, coming back to nuclear power again, right? that was the position of many leading nuclear physicists in the early part of the 20th century that, uh, yes, there is a massive amount of energy locked in the atom, uh, but it's completely impossible to release it. There is no way to transmute atoms, and there is no way to get at the energy that would come out if we were able to do that. Um, so that was the the dogma, the central dogma, if you like. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lord Rutherford gave a speech basically repeating that. He was asked, you know, is there any possibility in the next 25 or 30 years that we might be able to figure out how to get at this atomic energy? And he said, no, that's complete moonshine. Um, and then the next morning, Leo Szilard invented the nuclear chain reaction. <laughs> so you know, basically because he read Lord Rutherford's speech, um, so this you know but so this was the last time we created a civilization ending technology and and it took sixteen hours um, so to say that it's definitely beyond human capacity uh, to solve the remaining uh, open problems of AI is I think let's just say unwise yeah. right,
0: and it could come as quickly as as the nuclear reaction did it, well I think, us.
1: yeah. One One of the open problems could be solved. There's more than one open problem. I think it would would need half a dozen uh things like that. so it's pretty hard to predict when all of those would be in place and But you know when each one of them is solved, that'll be a big advance in the scope and capabilities of AI systems and and their potential for having these this catastrophic collateral damage, like the social media algorithms right. And um, so the the analogy I use in the book is is, it's like, you know, if a bus driver, you know, you're all on the bus and the bus driver is is driving straight towards a cliff as fast as he can. So that's the AI community. And we're heading as fast as we can to create human level AI. And he says, you know, don't worry. I know we're heading for a cliff, but I guarantee we're going to run out of gas before we get there. Right. It's like, well, come on, guys. That's that's not how you manage the affairs of the human race when the stakes are so high.
0: Yeah. So overall, are you optimistic that if, if people heed this warning now that we could put in place these rules for what the future of AI would look like and we could be in, in this golden era version of the future and not a one of these various dystopias brought about by the King Midas problem and things like that?
1: Um. So I'm reasonably optimistic. There, there's certainly a lot of work to do because you know we've got 70 years of technological development under the old model, and it's not easy to replace that overnight uh, with technology that operates under the new model. Um, we're just at the early stages of developing the algorithms and the various subcases and how you solve them uh, for that. So there's still a lot of work to do. But even before then, I think, just the advice to uh, to think not what is the objective that I want the system to optimize, but what are the potential effects of the system? Do I know whether those effects are desirable or undesirable? And if I don't know, then I design the system not to have those effects, right? not to change the world in ways uh, that the system and I don't know whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, that's a better. That's a better approach. So, that, that's sort of like a, you know, a best practice a guideline for the time being. But yeah, in the long run, the goal would be to have technological templates, designs for software that are provably safe and beneficial. And then there are two other basic problems that are, are much less technological, but I still worry about them. And at the end of the book. Um, I discussed these, and I would say um, i'm a little bit less optimistic uh about these because i I don't see technological solutions for them because they're not really technological problems. One is um, something that probably is apparent to to many people is if we develop this incredibly powerful technology, you know what about people who want to use it for evil purposes right. Uh, they're not going to use the safe and beneficial version, which would actually prevent them from doing bad things to people, right? Um, because it will be it will be designed to have the preferences of of everyone in mind. So if you try to uh, destroy the world or take over the world or do whatever it is you want to do, it uh, would have to resist. But you know what stopped them developing the unsafe version? Uh, perhaps under the old model, and putting in the objective of "I'm the ruler of the universe," mm-hmm. and the system finds some way of satisfying that—that uh, that maybe is not even what the bad guy intended. So it's not that he might succeed; is that is that the bad person might fail um, <laughs> by losing control over the AI system that that is unleashed. And so that's one set of worries. And if, you know, if you if you think about how well we're doing with cybercrime right now um, not then uh, this would be much much more of a risk and a threat and uh, so we're going to need to develop not just uh, policing but also I think we've got to somehow kind of build this into the moral fabric of our whole society that this is a suicidal um, direction to take and You know, there are interesting precedents in in science fiction. Um, For example, in in Dune, um, which is Frank Herbert's novel about the far distant future, humanity has gone through uh, a near-death experience in the form of a catastrophic conflict between humanity and machines, which, um, as as we're told, uh, we only just survived uh, to tell the tale. And so as a result, they is basically an 11th commandment to not make a machine in the likeness of, of man. So there are no computers uh, in that future. Um, so that gives you a sense that that this is not something you want to mess around with, um, that you would need pretty rigorous regulations and enforcement, but also uh, a kind of a moral code, an understanding that everyone understands, just as, you know, I think... Uh, creating a pandemic organism, you know, some engineered virus that would destroy the human race. I think everyone understands that's a bad idea.
0: Yeah, um, You have to hope your but, evil supervillains at least have some self preservation instincts right. on top of Even their evil.
1: Even They are not proposing. I think, that, well, maybe there are some, uh, there, there are some groups who really think that we should cleanse the earth of human beings altogether. But, you know, fortunately they're not too bright. Yeah. Um, the, the second issue is, is sort of the other half, or the other 99.99% of the human race, not the bad actors, but all of the rest of us who are um, you know, lazy and short-sighted. You know, even the best of us are lazy and short-sighted. Um, and uh, by creating machines that have the capacity to run our civilization for us, we create a disincentive to run it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you think about it, right, we've spent sort of over the whole human history, right, it, it adds up to about a trillion person years of teaching and learning just to keep our civilization moving forward, right, to pass it to the next generation so that it doesn't collapse. Um, and now, or at least at some point in in the visible future, we may not have to do that uh, because we can pass the knowledge into machines instead of into the next generation of humans.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And once that happens, right, it's in some way sort of irreversible. Um,
0: Like once there are no humans left who even knew how these machines were designed, who is going to have an incentive to figure it out? Retro- right. Yeah, it's- and,
1: and, and it's just, it's very, very complicated to sort of pull yourself up by the knowledge bootstraps. Um, you know, perhaps the machines could could sort of reteach us if, uh, if we decide that this is in fact, you know, we made a huge mistake. But if you look at, um, so if you see Wall-E, um, in Wall-E, right, every, the humans have been taken off the Earth on sort of giant intergalactic cruise ships. And they just become passengers. They no longer know how it works. They become obese and stupid and lazy, uh, totally unable to look after themselves. Uh, and this is another, you know, another story that goes back thousands of years to, you know, the lotus eaters and uh, other,
2: right.
1: other mythological temptations uh, that, when life makes it possible, to, to, to do nothing. To, to not learn, uh, to not face up to challenges, to not solve problems. We have a tendency to um, take advantage of that yeah. in ways that are not healthy for us. And So one thing, if, if your listeners haven't read the story, uh, The Machine Stops by, by E.M. Forster, um, I highly recommend that story. You know, E.M. Forster mostly wrote you know, uh, acute social observation novels of, of early Edwardian England, or you know,
0: uh, but, yeah, those are the uh, Birch and Ivory class. movies.
1: But this is this is a story that uh, uh, is really a science fiction story. You know, it had in 1909. He basically describes the internet, um, iPads, video conferencing, MOOCs. So most people are spending their time either you know uh, consuming or producing MOOC content. Um, And uh, the machine looks after everything. It makes sure you get fed, it pipes in music, uh, keeps you comfortable. Um, So the machine is looking after everyone, and we pursue these uh, increasingly uh, effete uh, activities Mm. and have less and less understanding of how everything really works. Uh, And so that was a warning sign from 110 years ago of, of one direction that it seems uh it seems like a, a slippery slope that's pretty hard to to avoid. Yeah. Uh, and uh you know some people have argued that it's already happening. I think I think people have been arguing this for for a long time. Um
0: I mean yeah, it makes sense when when you have everything offloaded on your phone, why would you waste your own brain cycles in doing things you don't have to? It, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I think my you know, my ability to navigate, you know, even in the Bay Area where I live, has, has probably decreased because it's much easier just to have the phone navigate for me. Um, and uh, so you don't exercise that part of your brain. You don't uh, refresh those memories of how all the streets are connected to each other and where everything is. So, the, you know, and I think that there are trade-offs, right? I mean, you offload you some parts, but, you know, you... You also, because you have access to much more knowledge through the internet, uh, rather than just saying, "Oh, it's you know, it's too hard to go, you know, trundle down to the library, wait for the library to open, find find the book if they happen to have it, open the book, read the page." You know, it used to take a whole day to find out a fact, uh, mm-hmm. and now it takes a second or or less to find out that fact. So we actually find out more stuff than we used to, as a result. So there, there are pluses and minuses to the way things work right now but we're talking about something much more general a general potentially debilitating enfeeblement of human civilization and the solution to that again it's not a technical solution right this is a this is a cultural problem um it's the economic incentive to learn and let's face it that's one of the primary uh drivers of our education system you know the system of training and industry uh is economic basically our civilization would collapse without it Mm -hmm. Uh, and when that goes away you know what replaces it um how do we ensure that we don't uh, slide into dependency and it seems to me it has to be a cultural imperative that this part of what it means to be a good uh, self-actualized human being is not just that we get to enjoy life and and have aromatherapy massages and all that kind of stuff but that we know things that we are able to do things that if if we want to you know build a deck we can build a deck if we if we want to uh design new kinds of radio telescopes we can design new kinds of radio telescopes um rather than just saying hey robot can you design me a new radio telescope i'd like to look at the other side of the universe
0: Yeah, so here's hoping that futurelings in this utopia where the machines have been designed in a way that they have our best interests at heart are also self-starters enough that they want to learn things and they've gone back and listened to this podcast, which hopefully is still out there. I I hope so.
1: And And I hope the machines, you know, the machines will tell us, you know, it's really bad for you to become dependent on us. So, you know, in some, metaphorically speaking, the machines will tell us, no, we have to learn to tie our own shoelaces uh just like parents do with their kids at some point the parents should stop tying the shoelaces for the child um and, and machines may basically do that to us they may say no we're not doing that for you it's, <laughs> not, it's not good for you to have everything done on handed to you on a plate uh but we top may love AI. right we may override that because you know we are we're not in the position of children children not in charge of their parents but hopefully we are still in charge of the machines and the temptation would be then to override that uh, that advice that they're giving us so it's a, it's going to be a very delicate balance for the machines i mean think of it from their point of view right how difficult is it going to be to ensure that humans become these autonomous self-actualized capable beings um, while protecting us from our own worst mistakes and so on and so forth it's a It's a very difficult problem, and there isn't really a good model that we can look at anywhere in the world for uh, basically less powerful, less intelligent entities retaining control over more powerful, more intelligent entities. Yeah, that uh, doesn't— Somehow (laughs) continuing to function well themselves.
0: Uh, Yeah, hopefully we figure out a way to make that happen for the first time. (laughs)
1: Yep, I <laughs> hope so too.
0: And yeah, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but again, it's not to say this, this couldn't all end very well. It, it certainly can if everybody starts thinking about these problems now as opposed to when it's too late. So Exactly. And I can't emphasize enough, the book has so much more than what we've already delved into, and it's, it's a great read. Everyone should check out Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. Stuart Russell, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, it was a pleasure.